Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lechtenstein. This week, we'll be talking about two things. Roe v. Wade. Should we be debating it or not? I thought it would be educational. It's either holding our head up high or dama la hashiv, etc., understanding our position. But some believe we shouldn't be debating or discussing what the profane, the non-religious have in their camps that we obviously are just going to go out pitayra. So why enter into conversation, discussion, debate with the sacrilegious? Here's a listener who clearly felt that it was wrong. You, for a fact, you brought on this deformed, wicked, backward, Piece of filth. Sorry about this years. A kaifer, a min, a malshin, a disgusting machav shemaim, and you have the shakva tie with her. Um, what's the right or wrong? What's the moral stance? As if she has a makom to stand the shaila. The fact you keep in hand with her is incredible. You're a malshin, nothing. You're nothing, shem, nothing. It's embarrassing. It's such a poison. You're a poisonous snake whose tumor goes everywhere. Now, we got 50,000 listeners to the last program. How do I do that? It's basically, if you look at our website, you could sort of do it times 3.5 because they listen on our website. We have the hotlines in America, Israel, and England. Then it's on Spotify, on Amazon, on Podbeam, et cetera, et cetera, throughout the web. So we did get a few, and I would like to address, because I believe you often learn more from the one critic than from the thousand people who agree with you. So, here's a story. A Rav in Petach Tekfer, a Moshe Malka, a Talmud Chacham wrote a tshuva to Rebel Yashiv, and he wrote, he doesn't understand why there are any Afghanis. He says, there's no mitzvah of Hecher Techiach to people who clearly know what it is, and all it does is Moshev Sinna. And he brings many tshuvas that show it, even the Mishnabur writes that way, when it's clear that Bikursim, etc., like in Eretz Yisrael, when it just creates sin, he says, why are we going to Afghanis? And Rebel Yashiv in the Chuvas, and of course we'll put in the Maramakimis, he responded, wait, you got it all wrong. We're not going because of them. We're not going to convince anybody. We're doing it because of ourselves. If we see Chil Shabbos by other people, and we just, we're unmoved by it, we're immutable, it eats away like an acid at your own Shmira Shabbos. So he says it's a protest to support and to be make him proudly our own shitas, our own kiyum shabbos, our own shmira shabbos. That's what he writes in his tshuva. And interestingly, you know, because halachically it's it's complex. I mean, the Gemara in in Shabbos and the Kufta Zayin Amaralov says that Shmuel used to go lebe abidan. It was a place, the house of Abidan. What does Rashi say? It was a place mokim shemisvachim shom, a place where they used to debate. Yisrael used to debate, and Shmuel used to go there. A says, how could they go there? As a din of harchik me'olel darkecha from derech minus. He says, if she's supposed to stay away from a base minus, from a base of Zara, how could they go to Be'avidan? He said, Be'avidan wasn't a church. It was a place for debate. He said, Right, so that's where we used to go. To a church, you didn't go. So you see, Chazal went. It's complicated in the place. Certainly it seems that with a Jewish Apikairis, we don't. But for Goyim, we can. So which way is it? Do we or don't we? So the Chafetz Chaim, when the kids are told us Chafetz Chaim, they bring like this. 
So the Chavetz Chaim wrote like this: Lot says Lariv in Machav Shem Shabbat. Go to to go debate, fight with the Friar, like some newspapers. Ezer Charedim Bitoinim Shalano used to do. Lo Hiskim Kal he disagreed because why? This that it says in in the Navi Anik Sil Kivalta answer the Sil Hanimili Bapikayrus Nachri Dafka would not be Kairus who's a guy, but an Apikayrus Yisrael Pakar Tfei. The Gemara says Gut Ein Gebakin. You're not going to change his mind, right? So he says, but to a guy Avada Yidudu. And then he says, he adds on, even by a year that we don't, that's Dafka where the Kfira has stayed sort of se- separated from our society. Because he says, why the Chavetz Chaim? If you go debate with him, some of it could end up sticking with you. If you look into the abyss long enough, the abyss will stare back at you. You debate enough, happy curses, some of it could splash off on you, some of that mud. So he says this, that we don't do it by Pakatzve, even by Yisrael, is Dafka, we're, we don't hear about it. You have it, you're Mamish, you, you Yeshivas, our Tohir, they're clean, they're segregated, etc. But he says, once the Minus is Heilich Misaifa Eilam Vatsaifai, the less asar the panimini, he says, as a nitzrach koil shekineg oisam koilos. We need to have an answer back. Kedei shebetoichne machne shomer hatayra lo yichal chela eres. We don't want to. I said, hey, we have nothing to answer them. That looks terrible. So we have to answer to protect our. I remember years ago, I was actually living in Lakewood at the time, and uh, I was eating by my brother-in-law on Shabbos, and a few Mormons came. The church of the the uh, the day of Ladder Yashkapandrik, and they came to the door and they said, "We want to, you know, talk to you about the Bible." And my brother slammed the door at them. So all the kids said, what, "What's going on?" They said, "Oh, it's missionaries." And I said, "Adaraba, let's invite them in." And we invited the missionaries in. And fifteen minutes later, when after the, you know, I said they're quoting, and the boss says, "Let's take out the Navi." No, that's not what the word means. And you start hitting them with the shallow. Doesn't he have to be like an anical of David? How could he be a Ben David? They would say agree to if there was a virgin birth. The kids, are fifteen minutes later, they packed up their books, and they ran for their lives. I said, stay, please, let's, no, no, we have to go there, right? So we have to understand a naked silky valta, and the kids should see that too. So I thought there's a purpose to, to discussing it. Now, I reached out to an eminent um, Jewish historian, Dr. Rivka Schwartz, and I asked her, what is our history of debating with the sacrilegious to my asylum? Here's what she had to say. Joining us from New York is Dr. Rivka Schwartz. She's a historian, a Princeton graduate, a doctor of history from Princeton, and she's written and spoken about Orthodox Jews in America. Welcome, uh, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you so much for having me. So Roe v. Wade, we're debating it, and we get a lot of pushback. We're saying, why are we debating with the quote-unquote, the secular society, the Americans as a whole? Why would we have to defend our position? Why would we need to defend our position? What is the history of Jews in debate with the societies they live in? Have they debated? Have they defended their positions? Give us a historical context. Okay, so I think we have to separate out two things, and then we can figure out which one we want to talk about. One is debate you'll say your ideas, I'll say mine, back and forth, we'll try to convince each other. But there's a different thing, which is often how from Jews have engaged in American life, which is advocating for our interests. I want to try to convince politicians or I want to try to convince courts to take steps that will either protect the interests that from Jews have, make sure that we are able to live according to halacha. And that's less a debate and trying to convince other people that I'm right as than it is I'm trying to make sure that if my posake and my doctor tell me that I need to do something medically, that the law where I live will, will allow me to do that. So we could talk about that position, American, American Jews, American Orthodox Jews, seeking to make sure that American law lets us live our life 
the way we want to, or we could talk about the ideas debate side of things. Um, I'm actually more interested in the first category that I laid out, which is how do I make sure that I'm going to be able to do as a firm do what I need to do. So an example of this That's, is a You're a pragmatist. I would say you're I a am, pragmatist. I am a pragmatist. I'm a historian, not a philosopher. I'm actually interested in you know what is or what was, not I, what I think should be. So New York State specifically in the 1970s was considering recognizing brain death as death. So to give a way oversimplified summary here, for a very long time, the way you knew somebody was dead was that their heart stopped beating. Now, with medical science, and since already the 1970s, you can have somebody on machines that keep blood circulating through their body, not because they're doing it on their own, but because they're on a machine that's doing it. And if you leave them on the machine and leave it keeping on going, that can keep going for a really long time. And so doctors and medical ethicists introduced the idea that we could define death even in somebody whose heart was still circulating blood through their body or with the assistance of the machine was circulating blood through their body by the definition of brain death, that the cessation of activity in certain parts of the brain would define them as being dead. This is a hugely controversial halachic topic. I am way not qualified to weigh in on it. We've had many, we've done a number of programs on it. The standard position among orthodox post is that brain death is not death and cardiac death is death, although there are exceptions. So when Rav Moshe Feinstein was asked in the 1970s, what should the position of the Frum community in New York be? Should it try to make sure that the state government doesn't pass this law at all so that brain death is not recognized for anyone in New York State? Because obviously, if you think it's murder, murder is prohibited to a Ben Noah also. It's not as though we think it's great if non-Jews engage in murder. And Ravosha said that our interest is not in trying to do that. Our interest is in making sure that the law has a carve out so that people who don't want to use brain death as a definition of death don't have to. In other words, we should make sure that the law protects our ability as from Jews to practice our religion the way we need to in hospitals in medicine, and not that the law requires for everyone in New York State that they follow what, according to Ramosha, would be the halakh definition of death. So that's the difference between trying to shape the entire society in which we live or trying to make sure that we personally, we individually, are able to live out our religious values, but I'm not trying to shape the broader society. The conversation around abortion comes down to similar kinds of things. Are we trying to make sure that a from woman who, under the advice of her post and her doctor, is permitted to have or even needs to have an abortion can get one? Or are we trying to shape the broader society in a way that's more responsive to what the halacha would ask of the broader society. And those two things often don't pull in the same direction when it comes to the conversation. And so there have been cases in the past when the Supreme Court, before the current case in front of the court, when the Supreme Court reconsidered abortion issues, and we're perhaps surprisingly to some people, the OU and Aguda weighed in, people who are not directly involved in the case can file briefs in the case just sharing their opinion with the court. Amicus briefs. Right. They file an amicus brief. As a friend of the court, I'm just sharing my thoughts. I'd like to weigh in. And the OU and the Aguda would weigh in actually on the side of making sure that abortion would still be permissible under the circumstances in which a from woman is told by her doctor and her post that she can or must have an abortion. And so they were weighing in on the side of, of less restrictive stances around abortion to ensure, again, that Orthodox Jews would be able to follow halacha and live that way rather than trying to make sure that more Americans would be living more of their lives more in accordance with what halacha so would mean them as well. You're saying the history of, of American like advocacy from from the times of Ramosha through today, I guess, is that the Aguda is more um, interested in advocacy so that we can live our lives according to Allah than feeling any need to influence upon the Gayim what we believe to be is their responsibilities or any type of towards the Gayish world. Yes, that has been the history of what Orthodox, you know, Askanim or advocates or political activism has looked like. Dr. Schwartz, this was fascinating. Thank you very much for your time.
You're very welcome. Really my pleasure. Take care. Bye. I didn't think of that, that it's because of uh, advocacy that we should be able to explain to the courts, to the, to the government. I thought it was for ourselves. I just want to wrap up on this topic. We may do, it's going to be in the news for weeks. So it's a little bit more. I had three points. Two I said last week and one I didn't. One I said is, is that they use very fancy words. They use choice. They're pro-choice. I said, who's not pro-choice? Do you want to be told what to eat for breakfast? Do you want to be told what to wear? What to, do you want to be told anything? Just, people don't like to be told. They like to have choice, freedom, right? But I said, what would be the case? A guy's in court and the judge says, what are you here for? He says, I'm pro-choice. The judge says, I'm also pro-choice. That's Gavaldic. So he turns to the prosecutor, like, this is New York, but we're pro-choice. Prosecutor says, yeah, his pro-choice was he stood outside, he was standing outside Tiffany's window on Fifth Avenue with a heavy hammer, and he cracked the window, and he said, my choice is the Rolex with the diamond face. So I think we all understand that's not what pro-choice means. Such a choice, <laughs> a choice that to take something that doesn't belong to you, that's not pro-choice. So, aha, we're all pro-choice, but at whose expense? So if the fetus right, has rights, it's a living thing, then you can't be pro-choice at something else's expense. Or autonomy, freedom. Who's against freedom? The United States declared autonomy from Great Britain in 1776. Are you against autonomy? You backwards religious person. You're against autonomy. Say, autonomy, really? You have freedom of your own body, absolute freedom. Can you walk around in the street naked because you have autonomy of your own body? Can you ingest drugs? Heroin, whatever it may be. Could you, could you, uh, prostitution, is it allowable? Because of, no, because autonomy, where it's at the expense of society. It's that somebody's paying the price for it. Over there, we don't allow autonomy. So it's the same question. Is this fetus alive or not? So to that, I was in the city this week and the, uh, the head of a uh, legal department of a very famous New York law firm said hello. He was sit- sitting at a table with a, a bunch of, uh, you know, non-Jewish uh, lawyers. Maybe some of them were, but they didn't look certainly not religious, different, you know, races, religions, et cetera. He said, Oh, I listened to your podcast on Roe v. Wade. So one of them piped up and, and what did he, what, what was his opinions? He said he was pro-life and they all started snickering. So I said, what, what, what? They said, oh, you know, listen, we're all, you're allowing religion to enter into law, et cetera. I said, let me ask you a question. You're all, you know, lawyers at a very big firm. It was, the firm was Wild Gottschall, one of the most famous firms in New York. I said, let me ask you a question. What's the golden rule in all relationships with other people? You're not sure you should park in a handicapped spot. You're not sure if, you know, in this store, maybe you could grab an extra apple when nobody's looking or a strawberry or all the different ways people can do things to other people or even embarrass somebody. You're not sure if it's right or wrong. What's the golden rule that even an atheist would use to measure? What's that? Hill said 2,000 years ago, What you don't want others to do to you, don't do to them. If you were handicapped, would you want somebody parking in your spot? If you were the store owner, would you want somebody to put a few extra things in their pockets? It's, would you want somebody to embarrass you this way? It's, that's the go- it works in every situation. So, so let's apply that rule here. Everyone here, all of you, me, even though I'm not an attorney, you attorneys, were once a fetus that was two months old. How would you feel if your mother elected to do abortion on demand, you wouldn't feel so good about it, right? We'd all be dead. So one of them piped up, but I wouldn't know about it. So I said, oh, so your standard is, if you know about it, then it fits into the golden rule. But if you never find out, he said, yeah. So I said, so let's say you have a sniper that could shoot a bullet that hits somebody in the head, it's traveling at, I don't know, thousands of miles a second, and it's instantaneous that the person never realizes it. Would it be legal or better yet would it be moral forget about it would it be moral because the the victim here is not aware of it 
That certainly sounds absurd, right? So not knowing about it doesn't. So how would you feel? So let's. I would feel if I was a child, two months old. Somebody asked if I could think as a fetus. I would say, but the childbirth would kill my mother. I would say, well, she has a right to live. She comes before me. I'm a roidif. If I was terminally ill, I had tay sacs like like the tzitzilia. I can understand that. But abortion on demand because she, she could get a better job or because she didn't want to take it. Well, do you know that in the United States right now, they say she'll be chained for. It's almost impossible to adopt the child. I know somebody very wealthy, successful, two parents. Very, they're trying to adopt the child already for ten years, and they can't. They would take a child of any race twice. They went down that path, and at the last moment, the mother's backed out. So, yeah, I would have told my mom, "Mom, you don't want to take care of me. That's fine. Give me up for adoption." Jeff Bezos was adopted. He did pretty well. Steve Jobs was adopted. He did pretty well. A lot of our you ask a lot of people, "How are their childhoods? Are you going to get?" I don't know. Wasn't the greatest. Well, maybe your adopted family would be happy. But to do a to do abortion on demand—that's the golden rule. How could you possibly allow it? That would be my rejoinder. Autonomy is a fake word here. It's a misuse of a word, right? Freedom, yeah, freedom to kill others or choice, choice to take that Rolex out of the window, and the golden rule. And that's how I would explain it to um, somebody who, you know, who is not religious, who, etc. Well, we're finished with Roe v. Wade. Let's talk about our guest this week. We're going to be speaking to Rabbi Reuven Epstein. He's going to be talking about marriage, the Shalom Bayis initiative of Reb Zacharia Wallerstein, Zacharia Lavracha, one of the great Askanim of our generation. He headed his Shalom Bayis initiative, and Shalom Bayis is the foundation of the Jewish house. The first mitzvah given to Klal Yisrael as individuals is not a chaylish as which was given to Bezdin, but it's the Yikhulachem Ish Selabais Ovo Yiselabais, the family meal, the power of family. So we're speaking to Rabbi Reuven Epstein. Then we're going to be speaking to Rabbi Tzvi Holland. He was the founder of the Phoenix Coil, Kashrus administrator for the Star K, about the Piske Gitten of Reb Not the Greenblatt. And to Rabbi Avot Leibowitz, he's the Rosh Koil of Palo Alto. And the reason why we went out of town is because Rabbi Nutter, around America, outside of New York City, he was the Melech. We'll be saying about his Piskei Gitin, some fabulous stories, Psakim, etc. So we will be talking about the Shalom Bayis, or alternatively, the Dine Gitin of two of the great, uh, a great Askin and a great Rav, should make for a very interesting program. Before we go to our guest, I want to say a small vart on the Parsha. This week talks about Yovel, freedom, jubilee, liberty, and it says the 50th year, everything goes out free. All humans, even fields, go back to their original owners. Everything is liberated the way it was meant to be. Except for one thing. If you lived in a city, a Batay or a it didn't come back to you. You sold it, it's gone. It's not considered really yours. The question is, what does the Torah have against cities? So I want to tell a, a thought. I'll share it with you. It says by Cain, Rabbi Nishom told him, no v'nod. You will be a wanderer. You will never have a place. You will be an ogarisana. You will be in a constant state of banishment, of eviction. Or oh, constantly evicted, no v'nod, uprooted. What does the Pasuk say right afterwards? Cain went ahead. And he created an ear. Now, the Rabbani Shalom said you're forever banished, evicted. And then he says he made an ear. Like, how is that consistent? Just a few psukim later. I'll tell you what I think the pshat is. I'd love to hear yours. When we're in the country, we're on our farm, we're connected. We're connected to the Mother Earth. We're connected to the wind, the arbaruchais, the wind, the earth, fire, kaviyachal. We're connected to nature. And through that, we're connected to Kav and ultimately to ourselves. And, but we're in a city, 
What are we connected to? Are we connected to ourselves? Or do we live in a constant sphere of being judged, of judging others, of being looked at, of being examined, of examining others? Are we in an ear banished from our own selves? A boy came to me this week. He was mamish bedimoishlish. He was crying. His father and his mother are getting divorced. And he says, he's shidduchem age. He says, it's the worst imaginable thing. And I looked at him and I said, what's so bad about it? He says, what do you mean? You think a chashiva family is going to do a shidduch with a divorced boy? I said, like a chashiva family, you mean like a sheinu mechutten, metagresa boich, you know, maybe a gavir or whatever person of stature. I don't want a son-in-law who's divorced. I said, do, do you think that's a mylan shidduchim? Like a father-in-law, in-laws or anybody, a family that is judging looks down, constantly measuring. This is, oh, look, look at our, look, our handsome son-in-law, Talmud Chacham, a guy in a rich, is that really what, is, is that something you want? I mean, I, I personally, you know, I did Kenayin Har, I did four Shadduchim. The last thing I wanted was, quote-unquote, a Chashev Shadduch. Why? That's what you need. You know, the Mechutten says this, and the Mechutten wants this, and the Shviga wants this, and the Shvaga wants that. Like, do me a favor. That is, to me, the definition of Nav a constant sense of banishment from self. Cain was Navinad. He was banished. Where did he go? He had to go to the city. Everything in Shnasa Yevel, everything returned back to its authentic self. The person who lived in the city, who lives in that constant sense of who's judging me, who am I judging, does it pass, doesn't it pass, am I good enough, are they good enough, that is so not his real home, it doesn't even go back to him on Yevel. So what's the message of this week's Parsha? Look, I live out in the country, so I don't want to sound condescending, etc. Let's remember that all that judgment, all that being judged and judging, it's not really who we are. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be one thing. We should be just connected to our authentic, authentic self, where the Rabbani Shalom gave it us. Much easier to do in the country, on your farm. Let's go to the riddle of the week. It says, V'chishev im kainayu, in this week's parsha. So the Gemara says, V'chishev im kainayu, Dvar toira nachri yorish asaviv. A guy, there's a dit of Yerusha by a guy. Guy dies, his son Yarshin. Shenemar v'chishev im kainayu. Question is, the primagodim in Yeridei Simen Samarbeis in the Mishpit Seizav Sefalaf says that there's no din by a guy of achrei rabim lahatais. You don't go basaruba. So the question is, if there's no Dinavachre Rabbim Lahatis by a guy, how is a guy Yerish Yosaviv? Maybe it's not his father. The Gemara in Chulin says, how do you know you Yerish the father? It's called Rav Bias Acharav. And you go bus a Rav. Which makes sense. In other words, when you see somebody, how you know it's your father? Well, it makes sense it's the father. I mean, you know, most people are, you know, have fidelity, etc. That's a din of rav. So the question is, if there's no rav by a guy, and there's no din of Azlina Basaruba, so maybe you would say it's not his father. And how could he be Irish? Bishlama today, you could do a DNA test. But the man of the Gemara, before a DNA test, how could they say, Nachri Irish Yisav, if there's no din of Acharabim Lahatis by a guy? If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. Let's go to our fabulous program.
joining us from Tom's River is Rabbi Ruvain Epstein, who worked closely with Rabbi Zuchari Wallerstein, Zuchari Lavracha. He was sort of part of the Ornava family, and Rabbi Epstein's specialty is crisis management, either in marriage or in dating. He taught crisis intervention, practiced it at Ornava. He, on, on Torah anytime, he has many shurim on dating, marriage, self-development. Welcome, Rabbi Epstein. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. Could you tell me, um, since this is a halacha program, let's start with that. What type of halachic shilas would you get that you probably had to refer to Rabbanim as a crisis, marriage crisis counselor? Well, there's the basic, you know, shilas that come along in terms of Paris Mishpacha and, and the basic shilas that people have. But what I noticed many years ago was that there is an interesting correlation between the basic halachic shilas that people have and the marriage side of things. So over the years, um, there were many shilas that would come down, such as it, it could be as extreme as mamzerus, abortion, um, you know, to, to even more extreme, which I don't know if we want to talk about necessarily on air. And I, I quickly realized that, you know, the world is a very diverse and colorful place. And therefore, not every person is equipped to dealing with everything. Certain Rabbanim have their expertise. Certain Rabbanim are really good at whatever it is that they're good at. And then you need certain people who are specialists in specific areas. So whenever I'm dealing with a couple, it's always my first question is, is this for me? Is it something that I can help? And very often what I find is that as I'm sitting with a couple, new information comes to light or circumstances may change or develop. And then you need, you need experts. So you had mentioned Rabbi Wallenstein. I know that we'll talk about him today. One of the things that he was so instrumental in helping me and really other couples um, you know, who came to him through me or me through him was when these major, major shilas would arise, um, you know, he, he either, he usually would, he would know exactly who to point you to. Okay, you need to speak to this doctor, or you need to speak to this Pisic. You know, let me make a phone call and I'll get you in. Sometimes it was mental health. Sometimes, you know, it had to do with eating disorders or cutting or, you know, self-harm, any of these types of things. And sometimes it was related to marriage. The, the, the one thing that he was so good at, he had like in his mind this Rolodex of, you know, call this person for this and call that person for that. And literally until his last day, he was just pointing, to, you know, connecting this person to this person and this person to that. Many times I would call him up with a specific case and I would say to him, you know, I need, I need your ear for a few minutes. And I would lay out what's going on and he'd say, oh, based on this person's personality, the way you're describing it, they need a different therapist than they're using. Or based on, you know, this, this guy's, you know, issues that he's dealing with, you should send them for a consultation to this person. Give me, I mean, I've seen, give me a, a few examples of halachic shilas that you've encountered doing this for the last eight years with Reb Scharia, or the last 20 years not with Reb Scharia. Right. So probably the biggest shaila that comes down where it's just, it just, you know, puts me to a standstill is whenever there's shilas of infidelity. You know, there's halachas over here about what's known, what's not known, who's trusted, who's not trusted. Um, and as somebody who deals with this, you know, the biggest shilas for me always is, is can I even be involved in such a case? Something where if you're helping a woman stay married in a relationship where halachically it may be, you know, problematic for her to stay married, she needs, she needs you know, I need my stock as, you know, somebody who may be helping them. It might be Ms. Ayala Zaravira. And they need their stock as to whether they themselves are able to stay married. Michelle, give me another area of Shiloh that you would get. Uh, it could be it could be teen pregnancies or, or Kala. So let's, so let's go teen pregnancies. What would be the Shiloh? The Shiloh, sometimes it affects people's mental health. So, you know, it could be a Shiloh of an abortion. It could be a Shiloh of, you know, just some, how we should deal with this, what other things that might be affecting, you know, the person or the girl. So, so, 
So what is the Shiloh by teen pregnancy? Is it a question of whether to be matter or an abortion? So we've had that a few times. And have there been rebu- have there been or for such cases? In, in specific circumstances, yes, we've had. You know, that's real. That's real. I mean, that's stretching the Tzitzeliezer to a new extreme, really. You're you're the expert here, but again, yeah. it, it depends. It depends on the on on the cases, you know. Um, but I, um, you know, we've had to go with girls to go ask these shilas whenever they would come up. Okay, give it. What other shilas would you encounter? Um, I, my primary field is really marriage. Okay. That's the, that's the side that so I... So give us some, some, before we go to the marriage, just general marriage advice, give us some of the halachic shilas that you would encounter in marriage. So, okay, so really infidelity is the biggest one, I think, that in terms of halakha would come up. Um, the, the I mean, I imagine one, it would be infidelity on the woman's part, not on the male's yeah, part, is exactly. that correct? Yeah, exactly. The biggest, the biggest one in terms of, we call it hashkafa, but it's really more than that, is really if and when a couple should divorce, you know, depending on the severity of that, and sometimes if a couple should get married. So you could have a couple that comes and... So let's, the wedding. let's talk about if and when a couple should divorce. How would you deal when you had questions like that? Okay, so this is something that, unfortunately, it, 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 it's right? There are people who have very severe things going on in their relationships, and it's something that has to be, um, you know, dealt with. The two things that I always look, you know, look for um, is a is the severity of whatever is going on, and for different people, different things are considered severe. Um, and then the second thing is how much is there a willingness for things to change over time? So those would be like the two areas of focus. So sometimes you have cases where it's not so severe, but there's no willingness to change. Sometimes the opposite. So you could have a woman, like I once heard the Rav told me, I just believe, I believe it's like an amazing story, of a woman whose husband was a shikker. This guy would come home every night completely drunk. And this woman once a week would get together with all of her friends. And they would sit down and they would all like make fun of her husband who was known to be the shikker. And this rug told me that this woman every week would sit around with her friends and they would all go, you should divorce the guy, he's a bum, he doesn't bring in any money. And they would all just, you know, make fun of him. And this went on for a number of years. And one day, this woman, she was sitting with her friends, and they started talking about, you know, her her husband. And this woman said, let me tell you a little bit about my husband. And she started explaining to them that, yes, he is drunk all the time. But even when he's drunk, he's so doting and loving, and he sits on the couch, and he sings songs about me, and how I'm the greatest thing in his life. Now, obviously, we're not talking here the addiction side of things, we're not talking about any of that. But for this woman, the concept of divorce wasn't even on her, her, her horizon. It wasn't a thing for her. She was getting out of her marriage whatever she felt she needed. Obviously, she needed more, but it wasn't, divorce wasn't, you know, she wasn't thinking about. Who do you speak to about these questions? So, I mean, Zachariah and I have sat with many, many a couple, you know, when it came down to it. A lot of the time, you know, it could be Revelia Brudney, who's just a guy in when it comes to this whole area, as well as mental health. Um, Rebusa Califon, Rebusa Berkowitz. I have my, you know, my rabbin. I, 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 I have a question to you. If one of these people had cancer, would you, would you go also, also to a Rav to ask what type of treatment they need? You bring up a good point. Mental I mean, like, health, why yeah. are you going on mental health issues, on marriage issues, to, honestly, to Harry Wallerstein? I mean, did he have a license in, in, in psychotherapy? I mean, like, isn't, like, I don't know, I just don't understand the whole concept of, of you know, a, a bunch of yeshiva guys trying to decide who should get divorced, who should stay married, how to deal with mental health. And I'm a yeshiva guy, but I, I, explain to me the concept. Okay, so first of all, we very often deal with therapists as well, meaning that's for sure. Um, you know, we consult with therapists, we deal with therapists. I do have to tell you that many therapists would send to Rabbi Zafari Wallerstein, and many 
you know, was sent to me as well based on his recommendation or those who knew me. So there's, there's a two-way street over here. But for, for, there, for generations, meaning, I'm, like, I'm going to use an extreme example. Take Rechaim Knievsky or the Stipler or, or the Chazanish. People would go to them with their problems and they had years and years and years of experience. I'm going to share with you a story that happened and it actually surprised me and it actually goes to the heart of your question. I was once sitting with Rabbi Wallace on a panel and it was about another four licensed mental health professionals, doctors, PhDs, the, the full nine yards. And someone asked the question in the audience, who would you go to or who should somebody go to if their marriage is having issues? They're having problems, who should they turn to? And I looked at my hands because I was thinking, these therapists are going to, you know, go to town. And one by one, the therapists all turned to Rabbi Wallerstein and they said, he's the man that we would send him, that we would send the couple to. And I was very surprised because I thought, what do you mean? You need a therapist. You need a, a mental health professional. And he said, no. The first step that you need is a diagnosis of what's going on. Not everybody needs therapy. Therapy is not what we do, and what we do is not what therapists do. When I'm not sitting there counseling a couple, talking about their childhood, doing brain spotting and EMDR. I'm not doing any of that stuff. Many people do need that. Many people need ongoing, you know, marriage counseling. But at the same time, many people, they need education. They need hadrasa. They need to understand, like, what they're going through. They, they, I'm not doing the therapist work, and the therapist is not doing the work that we do. So, so give me so, an example of the work you do. So by us, we could have a couple that comes and they say, we're constantly fighting. We're not getting along. For example, we think it's time to call it quits. Now, the reason why a lot of times you hear the extreme things is because the extreme things also come to our door because... That's what happens. But a regular couple, they just call up, hi, we're, we're constantly fighting. Things are just not good. What do we need to do? So usually we'll sit. It'll take however long, a couple hours maybe, get the full understanding, the picture of what's happening in this relationship. And then we, sit, we tell them, okay, here's the deal. Husband, you don't know what you're doing. You're a great guy, wonderful. You need some education. Let me teach you how to be a better husband. Wife, you don't really know what you're doing. Let me teach you how to be a better wife. And basically... The goal over here is education, and then it's very forward-looking. If you need to look back because there were traumas in people's childhood, or they grew up with, you know, dysfunction, or there's mental health, or there's addiction, you need a therapist, and you need a licensed mental health professional that's able to, to help you. But the, the first point of contact to see, do they actually need that? Does this couple who's fighting and they can't get along, do they need to sit in a therapist's office for 40 minutes, open up all the old wounds, and then walk out and then kill each other for another week? So give me an example of the hadracha you would give. So it, it depends on the scenario. Most often, like if you say to me, like, what's the most common problem? Let's say today, and I'm talking healthy. I'm not talking people who need, you know, therapy or, or any of the things that you're referring to. Most often, there's distraction. People are very distracted by, by, distracted by their work, by the things that they have going on outside of the house. They have their seatbook. It's coming from outside of the house. They have their phones. They have, and I'm not saying their phones for the bad things. I'm just saying for the distraction that it's involved. And today, more than ever, people are living in this world where they can exist and live and get almost all their needs met, you know, outside of the house. Whereas back in the Heim, you'd come home at 5 o'clock and that was it. You were off the grid. And I'm talking even 20, 30 years ago, you came home and that was it. Today, we live in a world that, like, distraction is a very large part of what it is. And people don't necessarily realize that working till 10 o'clock at night is not going to, you know, make your wife a happier wife because she's not getting any of your time. Your kids are not getting any of your time. And when they're getting your time, you have to give them quality time. Like, the basic stuff. The stuff that, like, figure a chassan should learn from A to B to C, 
to walk him through. I don't want to say any statistics or numbers, but many, many people, they're lacking that. And when you wake up after 20, 30 years of living a certain life, which we deal very often with couples in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, not just the young couple, you realize like, oh my gosh, I've been doing this wrong the whole time. I wish somebody would have taught me how to, how to do it right. What does a woman need from this marriage? What does a man need from this marriage? And when you, you start to teach that people and you keep them accountable and you say to them, look, start doing this for a week. I guarantee you, your marriage will change. And they start and they start seeing that change. That works. It's a different model than a therapist, and I love therapists. Therapists are great. Therapy is great, but it's a different model. It's a very forward-thinking model. Put in the things you need to do, be accountable for it, and you'll see that you'll actually change. You need to call me, here's my cell phone number. You need to email me, here's my email, my WhatsApp, everything. Be in touch. I'm going to be Mikhail of you. I want you to call me and text me every single day. And then we'll keep up, as opposed to like a 40-minute slot where you start talking about how miserable you are and you start talking about conflict resolution. You, or let me talk about your childhood to see if there's a reason why you're, you're not doing the, you know, the things you're supposed to be doing. Maybe the reason you're not doing the things you're supposed to be doing is because nobody ever told you. You never learned it. You never experienced it. So that's what you need to do. So it's a totally different model. So not everybody needs to just go run into a marriage counselor's office and sit down for hours. Some people do. Many people don't. And that's, that's the void that's sort of like being you know, filled over here. So is it sort of like a chassin schmooze on what, a fa- what family like, what marriage life should look like? Exactly. The only difference is that, unfortunately, today, many Hassan and Kala teachers, which is its own sugya, I'm sure you're going to do, you know, headlines just on this topic, their Hassan and Kala schmooze is really, it, it, it's not really speaking to anybody. It's like, ruach nefesh neshama, like Kabbalistic things, which are so beautiful and esoteric, but the guy walks out, he has no clue how to be a husband. You know, I speak for people all the time, and I, I ask, I'll go into a room of 100 people, and I'll say, raise your hand if you want your marriage to be as good, not better, as good as your parents. Maybe one person raises their hand in, in any room, right? Because they grew up in a home and they see what goes on. It's very limited people that go, wow, my parents had something so special. And I learned from them how to just be a rock star husband, just amazing wife. How many people have that? Very few. So you're taking people who have no concept of marriage, no education of marriage. They don't teach it in schools and yeshivas. They don't teach any of this. And you tell them, okay, now you're engaged. You have like, the most complex part of your life. Your emotions are going crazy. You have to prepare for everything in three months. And now we're going to give you some classes. And this is going to prepare you for the next hundred years of your life. It's very challenging. That's, that is what we currently have. So now it's no wonder that a person wakes up after five weeks, five months, or five years and says, I'm actually miserable because I don't know what to do here. You threw me into a new role. You didn't really give me any, any training, any, anything. How am I supposed to do this successfully? So, again, I'm not saying statistics here, but there's a very large portion of the population that's not as happy as they could be, and that's the void that we fill. Unfortunately, when we start talking to them, very often there were underlying traumas, there is self-harm, there is addiction, and that's where now we have to direct you to people who could help you. That's fascinating. Honestly, I think that the chiv of a chasen rebbe is is to feel that he actually empowered and gave over to every one of his Talmudim the ability to like actually have a successful marriage. If you went to pump your gas in a gas station and you said, could you fill it up? And the guy charged you and you said to him, hey, did you fill it up? And he goes, well, I think so. You'd say, come on, check. Tell me if you did it right, right? But when it comes to chassan classes, if you said to the chassan Rebbe, do you believe that this chassan is ready for marriage? Did you really empower him to have a successful marriage? More often than not, you'll hear, well, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, he's a tire rebacher and he's a masmid, so of course he'll figure it out. So question, are the Chassin Rabbeim and Kala teachers, are they qualified? I mean, do they, pay, do they get a degree? Does somebody test them? Or do you just, is it like being a Rebbe in Borough Park? You pick a city someplace in Eastern Europe and you put it on your front door and now you just became entitled. 
So, so it, it, there are certain people who are officially training other people, and they may have a recognized name or brand, and therefore there's a testing, you know, criteria and, and I guess a personality to make sure you have the right personality to do it. And then there's just people who hang up a shingle and they become a chassan or a kala teacher. It, it's its own sugya. Honestly, if you ask me, I think there should be some sort of standardized, you know, system in place. But unfortunately, the, the world that we live in today, there is no such thing. So people go to whoever they go to. So tell us tell us about the Shalom Bias initiative you launched with Rebbe Zachary Zachary LaRacha. Okay, so after I met Rebbe Lonstein, he started, you know, sending people my way. And a lot of what we were doing before started growing and growing and growing. And I realized that a lot of what I'm sitting and teaching people, it's the same thing every night. It's it's the bare basics of what marriage looks like. Um, and it, it, it's it's like almost a waste of time because it takes me 10 hours to give over this whole Mahalas and Shalom Bayez over to this guy and this couple and then the next next night I'm starting again from scratch. So he encouraged me to put together all of my material um, into like one one like like one seminar. So I, I created this website called marriagepro.co and I put together what I call the marriage curriculum and it's basically like medical school for marriage. It's like it's no fluff. It's just going through the basics of marriage. He told me that I should charge for it so that people would be much of it. So I'm not trying to make any sales here. I'm just informing you. So therefore, I have up on my website, marriagepro.co. And that sort of became like the guiding light. Like when I sit with couples, I'll oftentimes tell them, you have to go through the curriculum. This way you come in with like an understanding. We're talking the same language. Now we're talking the same language. We sort of go from there. Um, and then it became a dating seminar as well to help people who are dating because they were asking, you know, how am I supposed to have a successful marriage if I'm dating completely incorrectly and I don't know what to ask and I don't know what to look out for. So that became a whole dating seminar. Um, and then just, you know, classes on Torah anytime, which are sort of the feeder of a information and also to get people to like the next step in their relationship to, you know, get more education. So he encouraged all of this to be able to just continue to shed the light into areas of darkness where people were just uneducated. And when I say that, I don't mean like the, the person sitting in the back bench in the base bedroom. Everybody. It, it, this is just not spoken about often enough. The tools are not given over enough. And he was very instrumental in, in pushing that to happen. Baruch Hashem, over the years, you know, I don't want to give out any statistics, but we're talking, you know, a number of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views that were amassed through all these various, you know, shiurim and platforms and things, which was, it's good, because it shows that, you know, right? they're here to listen, and people need it, and the, the need is just, it's just tremendous. What is the status of the, the orthodox marriage in, you know, the United States today? Like, you get to see hundreds of, talk to hundreds of people. How does it compare to the, the non-firma marriage? Is, is divorce increasing? Is it, well, we hear more about it. Is it just because the population is greater? What is, what is that with the status of marriage? Okay, so... I, let me just say the positive, and you know, a lot of times from my from my armchair, it's, it's it's very easy to get caught up in the negative. I'll tell you the positive, and then I'll tell you the negative. But I'll first tell you the positive. The positive is that is that the greatest marriages, in my opinion, are good, tiredic people, meaning people who are grounded, who have basic yerushalayim, they have a certain level of self-respect and self-dignity, and they work on their midos. Those people, honestly, have the greatest marriage. You see a couple walking in Lakewood or in Muncie or in Brooklyn, 10 o'clock at night, and they're walking, and they're just talking to each other. They're not having a heated argument. Those, those people are amazing. 
and, and, and it's, it's not, you don't need to move mountains to have a great marriage. It's the small things that you put in. Those people, they have very small hasagas. They're not excited by anything big, and they're just, they have their, themselves grounded. Those people, and I think that we have so much of that. We really do. In, in our society, Baruch Hashem, we have really great people. Um, we also have people who have struggled in their lives, and today, because of the resources that we have, whether it's Amudim or mental health professionals, people who have gone through the worst of the worst, and they've actually built themselves back. What is it? Build back better? They went through the build back better plan, and they really got themselves to a point where they're able to be like good growing people. And that's the good side of things. Baruch Hashem, we have more education today than we ever had. We have better yeshivas than we ever had, you know, in certain ways, meaning it's grown and whatever, but we have so much good in Kali Yisrael, and we really, really have to highlight that. At the same time, we have more Nisiyanas today than ever before. I mean, it's just what people are struggling with today is, is out of this world. Now, I'm fairly young. I have no, you know, authority to talk about what was before the war, what was after the war. I have no idea. But I would venture to say that what people are dealing with today, it was never, ever even a concept to our grandparents that people would have the access to the things that they have today. The concepts that they have today, the struggles that they have today, I don't think that this was even a concept even 20, 30 years ago. So I think that we are living in a time where the divorce rate is certainly growing. I don't think there's really a question about that. Um, I once heard from somebody who's like in the know, they said that there is approximately like a 2 to 3%, you know, by kindergarten kids. If you look at the kindergarten in any yeshiva, it's a 2 to 3%. So they were saying that's, that's a good thing. And I was like, I don't think that's actually a good thing because that means that there's one kid in each class whose parents are divorced, and that's just the divorce. And that kid is only in kindergarten. But by wait, Rebruvin, wait, wait, are people getting divorced because of, you know, bad things happening in Western society, etc.? Or are people getting divorced because, you know, prior generations together, no matter how bad the marriages were? I think it's a combination. I really do. I think it's a combination of things. Um, you know, in the olden days, let's call it, people would stick together no matter what. Today, things are certainly disposable. I've had couples sitting in my house who went from zero to 100 in terms of how toxic the relationship was in no time, and they got divorced over absolute stupidity. And, and anyone involved was like, you guys can't seriously be getting divorced because of this, but they did because it's, it's a disposable generation. Everything is disposable. Your car is disposable. You get it, you get back the lease, you get a better one the next time. So in a certain sense, we definitely struggle with that. We also struggle with the internet and addictions in ways that we never had. And but, I'm not, I'm not but, here to but, diagnose quality control, but okay. there's certainly more going on today than there ever was. Yeah, but let me let me ask the question there too. Is the internet just allow people to act out on what they always had those feelings, or is the internet creating new problems? I, I think the answer is yes and yes. Um, to a very large degree, if you take the average good guy in a good yeshiva... You Wait, know, I want to go back to something you said. Yeah, go ahead. You said you've been in classes, you said, with hundreds of people, and you would say, who wants their marriage to look like their parents? And you said, nobody raised their hands, which implies that their parents did not have good marriage. Their parents lived before the Internet in the right. older generation, and none of the kids want to look or have their parents' marriage, which doesn't seem to imply that parents had very good marriages. But it's like all these fuzzy, warm pictures of the Haim, from what you're saying, it doesn't seem they had very good marriages in the Haim if not a single person or one person out of 100 raises their hands, right? So it's a good question. I guess some of it is based on children today, I believe, have um, more, they're more in tune to their emotional um, needs. You know, I, I'll tell you a, a, an interesting story that I had. I had a couple that got married, bought my curriculum, and they sat down to watch it. And the grandparents, who were 
probably in their high 80s. They came into the room and they see their children watching you know, watching a, a class on marriage. So they said, what is this? And he, they told him what it was. So they said, oh, you guys are struggling? They said, no, we're not struggling. We just, we just got married. We want to, you know, learn about marriage. So they said, okay, you know, we'll watch it with you. So the grandparents sit down and they started watching this class with their grandchildren. The grandchildren told me this story. And the grandfather was like making snarky remarks the whole time. Oh, today's generation, this is what they need. They need the education. And, uh, you know, he's going on and on. And at the end of the class, they look at their grandmother, and she was bawling. She was just tears streaming down her face. And they said, Bubby, why are you crying? And she said, how have we would have known this 50, 60, 70 years ago? How happy we would have been for all these years. So there's no way, you can't talk about general, rabbanim, and people, because it's such a general, you know, term. It's such a general, general concept. But yes, many people, their marriages were functional. They were focused on building Kali Yisrael after the Chorban. That's where they were at. That was where their mindsets were at. Today, people, in a certain way, it's because we're more spoiled, and that's the downside of it. But in a way, people are more in tune. I feel this. I feel crushed. You know, the entire, the entire psychology of, of, of people became so different over the last 50, 60 years in the sense that we're much more sensitive, you know. You can't just scream at your kid and smack him around and expect him to come out normal anymore. It, it, it changed. Kids today, they're like, oh my gosh, I need therapy, I was abused. You know, I don't know about you, I'm sure, I'm sure you had this, you weren't smacked around a little bit in the cheder. That's how it was, and you took it, and you're like, haha, that's what it means to go to yeshiva. It doesn't exist anymore. Why? Oh, this, the, the, hello, the yeshivas I went to growing up were absolutely horrible. And my okay. grandchildren have much better yeshivas than us. I'm just wondering how much of it is, especially after your story about nobody raised their hands, all the parents had unhappy marriages, how much of it is things are worse or people are just realizing they have options that they never had before because of, because of wealth, because of education, because of you know, stigmas disappearing. People who would have spent their entire lives miserable um, suddenly realize they have options. And I'm not hearing anything either data-wise or even anecdotally that gives me an answer to that question. Right. I don't know that there's a specific answer. I think there definitely needs to be studies that go into this. But I, I do think that the good side of this is that today we do have resources that we never had before. And we do have certain sensitivities today which allow couples to be so strong and so powerful, like as a unit. And, and that's how it is. You know, again, many of the people in the, in the previous generations, they got married. It was very functional. It was your Shemesh Shabbos, I'm Shemesh Shabbos, you know, specifically after the war. Now it's not like that anymore. I need to feel, I need to feel something. I need, it has to be developed. You know, girls call me probably my number one question about dating girls, but guys also call me say, I'm dating. I went out five, six, seven, eight times, and I don't feel anything. You and what do you, question, how do you I'll respond? You answer, but do you think that question was asked 75 years ago? Absolutely. It was, yeah? Absolutely. I, have a, I had a very good, um, 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 I was a Talmud cover of Rebelli Baruch Finkel, and he told me that Rav Shach read him a shidduch. And he went out with the girl. Shav Shach said he didn't want to go out again. Shav Shach said, why don't you want to go out again? So he told Shav Shach, you know, I don't have any Mashiach to her. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, right? Yeah. Shav Shach said to him, it says by Yitzchak, he told him in Yiddish, Yitzchak is first he married her and then he fell in love. He said, right. so, so why do you want to feel this way in advance? So he right. told he told Rav Shach, who says I want to get married like Yitzchak? Maybe I want to get married like Yankovin. <laughs> right? Right? Right. So my point is, what you think we discovered romance in the year twenty twenty two? I hear that. I hear that. 
But but the question is is definitely uh, probably I would say my number one question when it comes to people who are dating. So how do you answer it? So I'll tell you the answer. The answer is is that they need what 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 girls and really guys also need to do, and when they do this, I could almost guarantee that this works. Is they have to date emotionally. Meaning, so today so many people are focused on, like we spoke hashkafa. What does that mean? It means we both want to move tired to straw. Very nice you want to move tired to straw. It doesn't mean that this guy is your shitta. When, when people start dating emotionally and asking emotional questions and connecting on an emotional level, that's where you actually actually see the change. When they ask questions like, like you know, was there ever something that was difficult for you or challenging and how did you deal with it? And the guy starts talking about how when his grandmother died or was there something that, you know, you struggled with. And I'm not talking about we have to get the person to open up to like this crazy insane level. You're not doing therapy on a date. When the person starts to reveal themselves emotionally, that's when you develop that emotional, wow, this is a guy. This is my guy. I would love to go through life with them. That's how you start to do it. So most people today, unfortunately, or many people, they don't date like that. It's a very functional date. So they go out and they spend their time, whatever, and then they come back. They go, yeah, it was nice. Nice guy, nice girl. I'll say yes, I guess. But like this is probably, for me, like you know, one of the top things, which again, is because I think that people today are... Revali Yubarach was my Rebbe, by the way. I mean, he was... He was he, that, that story is so... It's, it's Revali Yubarach, that's all. I mean, he was, that was who he was. But yeah, but many people... I really believe that many people today, they strive for more, they yearn for more, and they want something out of their relationship that makes them feel, you know, really, really good. So now that Rebbe Zachariah is gone, talk about the void that needs to be filled. Zachariah, it's, it's... You know, what he did, I, I would say, you know, 50 people can't replace him. It's like an understatement. On, on a daily basis, his phone would just ring and ring and ring and ring. And our Nava offices would ring and ring and ring. So in terms of the program, you know, very smartly, he didn't run each program on a day-to-day basis. He had, you know, Arnava, Terrace Nava, Benospina, BCA, which is for, you know, his high school, the ranch, which is for girls. Like, each one of his programs sort of runs on its own, and it has its director and its person who's in charge. The Rabbi Wallerstein that people would call and say, Rabbi Wallerstein, I need to talk to you now, that void is, is huge. And, and it's, it's, you know, my phone over the last few weeks has been just nonstop with people who now don't have somewhere to turn to. Um, and many people who, you know, are struggling because of his patira and since his patira. Um, and there's just so, there is a tremendous voice. So together, many of the Arnava staff, including, you know, Rabbi Ezra Max and, and Rabbi Gil Freeman and many others who work, worked with Rabbi Wallerstein, so are taking on more of the caseload, and there are meetings to try to put together something meaningful, such as a hotline where we're able to, like, sort of channel a lot of the, the people who need that, you know, assistance and to be able to work with them. There's nothing that's ready to be rolled out yet, but it definitely is in the works. And a big part of Rabbi Wallerstein's legacy, I'll call it, was that he literally treated each girl as it was his daughter or his sister. That's how he was. You know, he told me that the first time I met him, and he told me that a hundred times since these girls are your sisters, these girls are your daughters, that's how you treat them. So when a girl would come and say, I need something, if there was something that he could refer her to, he would, and if not, then he would open a program for her. So his seminaries, he felt that there was a void in a specific type of girl, and therefore he said, I'm going to address that. And then he filled up with those types of girls. His high school, the same thing. That was who he was. Ruben, this was fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Kalta, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Joining us from Baltimore is Reb Tzvi Holland. He's uh, a Talmud of Reb Nata Greenblatt, He's the founder of the Phoenix Community Kill, Kashrus Administrator for the Star K, Talmud of Scranton, Hevron, and Rabash Arieli in the Mir. Welcome, Reb Tzvi. 
Thank you, Rabdavid. So what can you tell us about Rabnata? Most, I would say most, but certainly many of us know very little about him. So in certain circles, uh, Rabnata was definitely a nisbet. But for anybody that was a rav or uh, involved in Kaddish, outside the largest Jewish communities in the United States, not only was Rabnata not a nisbet, but Rabnata was everything. It's, there's no way to describe, there's absolutely no way to describe this person. You're talking about a person who uh, was born in Washington, D.C., went to Cheder in Yerushalayim and Chayolam. He learned by Abdavid Leibowitz in the original Chavetzayim on South 9th Street. He was a Talmud Chavar of Michal Feinstein and of Yosheb Berstelovetschik and Heichel Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, the famous one-year yeshiva in Boston. He was from Rabbi Moshe's most prominent and favorite Talmudim. He had so many careers. For, for a normal person, each one of them would have been a full career. He was one of the world's biggest experts in Tudor Gittin Vechalitza. He built Mikvayis, Erevin, he was a Moyle, he was a Shoichet, he was a Rav Machsher. He established, in many ways, the vast majority of orthodoxy outside of New York City and the major, like maybe outside of New York, Chicago, and L.A. Every one of our communities was, was dependent in some way on Rav Mata. The most important and fascinating thing about him is that at the core, the most important thing, he told me this himself, the most important thing that he did in his life is that 73 years ago, he founded the, what today is known as the Margolin Hebrew Academy Yeshiva of the South, the Orthodox uh, preschool to 12th grade plus the Kailul and at different times the Yeshiva in Memphis, Tennessee. Walk me through details. How is he important? Like, what does that mean? Let me explain. I want you to think back to the years before there were airplanes and, and cell phones and fax machines and emails and all that type of stuff. If a city if a city needed to be connected in some way to to, to honest and true psakalocha, if a city needed a goal to support them and give them chizuk, remember go back to the fifties and sixties when there was Kamat no day schools in the country, when conservative was taking over. Who, who went to be Mechazik, the, the, the Orthodox rabbi that went out there that he should, shouldn't let the Mechitza come down or put the Mechitza up or to build a proper mikvah or how to fix the local Shechitza or how to get Rebbein for his day school or how to establish a day school? Who was it? If you travel around the country, you'll find there was one man. It was not the Greenberg. In every single city, in every single city, when the Rav had a Shvera if it was about Yuxin, it was about Gitin, if it was about if it was about Kasras, if it was about his mikvah, it was about his age, if he called Rabnata. That's what it was. And who was Rabnata? I'll tell you who Rabnata was. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell the whole story. When Rabnata was a Bacher, and let's go back and let's understand that Rabnata went to Eretz in 1946 on the first boat after World War II, together with Bel Yisrael, to learn in Eretz Yisrael. The three years prior, so 43 to 46, that means after the Moshe Zalavechik passed away, and Rabbi Shaber went to Yeshiva University to Chachanan to say this year, and Michal came to MTJ to his uncle Rabbi Moshe and brought him not along to Rabbi Moshe. 1943 to 1946, he was a bacher in Yeshiva by Rabbi Moshe. For much of that time, he answered Rabbi Moshe's phone, and he answered the Shilas as a, as a bacher. And somebody called up once, he wanted to speak to Rabbi Moshe. He said, Rabbi is not available. What's your question? So he said, I have a question. I want to speak to Rabbi Moshe. He said, try me out. If I don't have the answer, I'll, I'll speak to Rabbi Moshe. He says, what's your name? He says, Greenblatt. He says, how old are you? He says, 19. He says to him, he says to him, are you married? He says, no, I'm a bacher. He says, okay, I'll try to shiloh. So he asked him to shiloh. 
and he tells them, the mother says back to the, to the Shiloh, he says, look, the second half of what you said is not negated to Shiloh, but the answer to the first part of Shiloh is Azayin, 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 because of this, 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 man. And the Shiloh on the phone says, Zer Gut, Zatka Moshe, Kutna Gerufi. It was a bit Kutna. That's a funny story. As it goes, How, tell me about your, your interactions with him. In 2000, I mean, 22 years ago, I was sent by Tarmasara with a small group of young to establish a cradle in Phoenix, Arizona. And I did not appreciate, I did not appreciate the tremendous chizik and, and, and the risks. And the, I didn't know what I didn't know, which is, you know, really, you know, the greatest moment of youth. I had no idea what I didn't know. And uh, the patron of the cradle was Shmuel Kamenetsky, so look at some time. Shmuel was there for us. I spoke to Shmuel all the time. But uh, how many times in the years I was in Phoenix, Shmuel came, maybe came... Uh, I don't know, maybe two, three times he came to visit us. The, the first night we learned the full, the first day we learned the full day in the Bismadrish, the door flies open to the Bismadrish, we were learning one of the shuls in the, in the afternoon it was, in walks the man, dressed as if he literally was from the 50s or the 60s, and he had a little spitz part, he had a briefcase, a plastic bag, he says, like I an refrigerator, this is food, and he says, a is in town, here I'm making the Gitten. And from that time, Rabnata, we never, we never, I never saw him, I heard of him, I never saw him. From that time, Rabnata adapted us. And he did all the Gitten, wherever we happened to be learning, that's where he did the Gitten. And Rabnata adapted us, he came, he stayed in my house, I don't know how many times over the 12 years, but I would have to say 50, 60, maybe more times, he stayed in my house. So one night, sometimes two nights, uh, all kinds of maizalach, all kinds of things. Uh, he came and he took care of us and he cared about us. Every Rav who met him was immediately uh, besotten with him. And everybody knew his phone number all around the country, every small town in America. Start on the West Coast, San Diego, uh, you know, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Dallas, Houston, Austin, Denver, Boulder, Santa Fe. Can you, but can, you, can you share some of your experiences with him? Can you tell me, yeah, Shiloh, that you, that, you, that you discussed with him? Sure, sure. Um, we had a Meister. Uh, which is, uh, you know, a relatively serious Misa about uh, the cashiers of... Uh, so, so so what happened was, in this place, unbeknownst to anybody else, there was a guy who, on a regular basis, would flip over one of the cutting boards and cut things that weren't kosher on the cutting board. He was very mapped on it. He would cut things that weren't kosher on the cutting board, and then he would wash it all up. And uh, I saw it once. I was once in there, it was at a time early in the morning before the Balabas came to unlock everything, I saw it once, and I said to him, I said, what are you doing? He says, no, Rabbi, this is separate stuff, I'm not doing, anyway, and they would wash, they would wash this thing, this, this board, they'd wash this board, hot water, and there's all kinds of other stuff in there, and it was like a shy that maybe he made the whole place straight, you know, you had to start over again, especially if you're a young uh, rabbi who never encountered this type of thing, you know, and you don't know how, what to do, and you don't know how to do, and you don't know this, and you don't know that, you don't know how to deal with it. I called the Rabnata. So what he was, he was washing a cutting board that had trefa, trefa, uh, what was it, blood or juice, whatever it may be, right, yeah, uh, into, uh, into a sink. Into a sink with equipment and all kinds of things, and, he, and something he did to say that. For I years. I understand that. So it's, a, so it's a question that the, the, the kalim of the sink could have been by Leia, 
and now the kalim are treif, and you're cooking in these, and they were cooking in these kalim. So it's a in so, the so it's a benyamai. So it's a benyamai, and you masupik whether whether it's uh, whether it's which you call it whether the, the, since the oivy of the tzfanis the shulchan aruch says counts, so it's even a shiloh whether it's bapul b'shishim, right? Correct, correct. Okay, so the Shulchan Aruch talks about this case, right? And it says, right. since Midaraisa is bottle Barayv, right. right, so Midaraisa, it's going to be Kasha. The Shailas and Arts, Yemesupik, you don't know for sure, what, when did they cook, how did they cook, was it Berlea, was it a Berlea? So if it's a Suffolk, so you would go, you, you would say, it's it's a Suffolk Drabon and Lakula. But if you knew you cooked in that pot that day, then it would be the Shailah. That's what the Shailah right. you asked about yeah. there, right? Correct. And in a commercial facility, they cook every day. So it wasn't a shilus. So, you know, as a young person, as a young person, I knew that uh, when I started to feel like, you know, like the world was coming to end, I have to make a tumult. I'd already learned that I didn't know anything. Uh, maybe I knew all about the benyamins and the shilus and this, but I didn't know anything about the real world. Shiloh of Shefa, I, yeah. I want to, I want to tell you. I, I'm going to tell you. It's really a marvelous. I asked the shilus to two fellow Israel. I called them both. I didn't get through first to the first one, and I got the second one. I asked the Shiloh to the mother, and I asked the Shiloh to the Shmuel. They both said the same thing. Both expert I learned a lot from both of them. They both said the same thing. They said, both told me, just relax, don't get excited, right? Both told me the same thing. Go to the Balabas. Tell them that you have a Shiloh. Tell them why you have the Shiloh. You know, and there was the... Uh, and then tell them that, that you spoke to her, spoke to, somebody spoke to me, each one said that, somebody spoke to me, and Pastor Solomon, we know he didn't intend it in any of that. So take a thermometer, first check if the water's really hot. There were both seasoned Rabbanim and Paiskim, and you know, you see when the, the same thing happened. The water, as, as often in a commercial facility, the water was regulated to be just under Yadzal Lettuce Boy because they were afraid of lawsuits. So they used to, in a commercial facility, often the, law, the water it's not hot enough to be mavli anything. So Baruch Hashem, there was no shayla. But you know, it was something that you know the the, the calmness and the clarity and the immediate you know clarkite was you know really really was really was unbelievable. But we we felt we had a, we had dozens and dozens of shaylas. Give us a, give us shayla. another shayla. I'll give you another maister. I'll give you another maister. I I said this over the rabbim. I believe that I believe it's a good way to describe uh, nothing. Nothing was brilliant and he was hilarious. He was very funny, and he was gishmak, and he was super clear. But every asked him a shot, he gave a straight answer. And you'd almost think that because he was an Eloi, that you know, he didn't have Yerush HaRuah. But I'll tell you a story. He was on a first-name basis for Rav Yashif. In Gitan, he was, he was the man. He was, he was probably, you know, he was Kaveh more Mekaymas for the Shemus about how to write a Shem Makam than any individual in the history of the Halacha. Today, so many places, not only in the United States, around the world. We had a Misa where this, one of the Adim signing a get, instead of saying before his Chasima, tell the other Aid, Shimolai, Aid, whatever, Reish, and he chosen Gedel, the Shem of Alamagar, and so so, God, so and so, when he chosen Gedel, the Shmoy, the Shmoshem Gedel, as is required, as you know, the Gemarans Vachem, the Beis of the Beis says that if you sign or write a get, the Stam, it's possible, it's considered Shaloy, the Shmoy, as opposed to a carbon, and he didn't say it. And the Rabbata was running to a plane. We had a few people. He turns to the man. Well, after the aide says, you know, one of the things we do after the get is we, we ask the aide, aid him in front of the bezin to be made that they did everything with the Shmuel They said it and so on and so forth. And they didn't do And the aide said, no, you know what? I didn't do it. So Rabbata stopped. And he looked at the, he looked at the, at the bow. And he says, listen, sir. He says, everything is fine. 
but I can't give you a certificate today, and you're not going to pay me. When I work out that you're properly divorced, then you're going to, I'm going to send you a certificate, and you're going to pay me. So what happened is, so what happened is, I, I was familiar a little bit with the silent. I immediately pulled out an Archa Shulchan by Rav you know, as you know, by all Tamidim of Amosha, by many Paisim, Archa Shulchan is you know, a powerful Paisim. And, and I showed him, I thought that Archa Shulchan said that it's kosher with the other. Not to say, good off of egg, I'm traveling. You're not allowed to pass in such a silent when you're traveling. Uh, and, and, and the emphasis is that uh, the normal way is to rewrite to get in many cases when this happens. And he walked out. And then I faxed him, uh, in those days he used fax, I faxed him to some cipher that passed him that it's, that, that, that it's okay. And he wrote me back a letter. I have the letter. I didn't even write the letter. It, it was written on Hanukkah. He says, I don't remember what year. It was Gimel Hanukkah or something. And instead of writing where he was, he wrote Baderach. I imagine he wrote it on a plane. And he wrote... The following thing, he says, you know, it was very nice that you sent me, you showed me the Chasuchan. It was very nice that you showed me some Sefer, and all this stuff is with the Evet. But again, it needs to be Lechatechila. And I thought about it, and I was minded to the Sugya. Taisvis in Zvachan, the base of the base, says the reason why a get this time is possible is not Lushma. He says, Eina Isha, I met this Lizgarish Baget there. It means that there's no such thing as a woman who's under the Lizgarish Baget that you do for time. Because who says the woman, who says the woman's going to be in Lizgarish Baget? How could it be Lushma? You can't do it for time. If you don't do it Lushma, this time it's going to be called Shalai Lushma. Because nobody's in Medis Lizgarish Baget there. That's what not says. It's no different. And being the Vesamikdash or the carpet, he says, if you're sitting in front of Balan and Isha, a Balan, you're sitting in front of the Balan and Isha, and the cipher wrote the get, and the Adem was signed the get, and you were Mitzvah to write that you were Mitzvah to sign the get, that's not called Bistam. Yeah. That's not called Bistam. That's not called Bistam. Yeah. To me, <laughs> you, know as far of the, you know as far of the Chayadam that I'm referring to? The Chayadam says in, uh, I'm sorry, I think it's in Simon Samachalaf, he says that. Even though we hold, we paskin, that mitzvah srichas kavana by a daraisa, and if you did it without kavana, you'd have to do it over again. But he says, you're sitting by the seid and eat matzah, and you, and you witch him cold, you made it without kavana. He says, why are you wearing a kittel sitting by the seid, if not because you're trying to be a mitzvah's matzah? So in the Hanami, if you were walking down the street eating the matzah, you would say mitzvah srichas kavana, and without kavana, you'd have to do it again. But here, the whole gestel, shtel zavek, that this is the kavana, and therefore, in that, and the Mishnabur brings it la'alacha. Right? All the pipes can bring the chayadam la'alacha. If you're standing in shul, and, you, and you're shakaling lul of an esrig, over there, even if you hold mitzvah srichas kavana, and you did it without kavana, it has a din of mitzvah srichas kavana, the chayadam says. So it's the same kind He's not talking about matzah, because kafal v'achol matzah yotze also. He's talking about uh, less clear case, but no. regardless, my my point was only is that you know he had a certain he had a certain brilliance that for many people would allow them to be very flippant because since he was faster than everybody in the room, could have you know he could have ran rings around anybody. Whatever he said, we would have accepted. Tell but us another shy, another shiloh that you had with him. So I'll tell you, we, we we spent a lot of time speaking about regular rabbinic meisters. So I had a shiloh once. I'll tell you, maybe three shilohs together. And Shiloh wants about somebody wanted to be buried in a suit uh, in, in a basic chorus. And we know that a basic chorus is the right way to bury a basic chorus is in a... Tachrichim. He says, I want to talk to Maisa. I'm Maisa over the rabbi in the south. I get a call from a Mr. So-and-so. He was a brisker. You know, his father was a brisk. Remember, Maisa Sokolovsky, he was not to his everywhere was a brisk. He told the story with all the details. He said, I got a call from so-and-so. He said, I have a conversation with such and such a city. And he says, Rabbi... They want me to bury him in a green jacket. And it's all a green jacket. He says, no, they want you must be buried in a green jacket. You understand? The man was a member of the, you know, Augusta National, where the, the, the masters got him in this place. And you get a green jacket if you remember that album. The Hashem Right. And 
And the rabbi, the head of the Chavah Kedisha says, Rabbi Greenblatt, the rabbi wants me to do it. What should I do? So Reb told me, he says, you know what I told him? I said, I said, Mr. So-and-so, you, what, you want me to find the Heter? Maybe we can find the Heter. He says, you tell that rabbi. I've been the head of the Chavah Kedisha here for 64 years. That man is getting buried in Tachrichim or I quit. And if he asks you why, you'll tell him why. He says, then you there we can find the Heter. He says, but Chashem Mishpat. Various of people bought plots and were buried there. I'll dust that it's an Orthodox cemetery. As soon as you put a man in a green jacket on the ground, it's an Orthodox cemetery, it's Gleva. That's one Meister. Another okay. Meister told me, we had a, we had a Gyaris. And the Gyaris called me up. I was sitting next to him when she called me up. And the Gyaris wanted to go to her mother's funeral. Her mother passed away. She wanted to go to her mother's funeral. So, the Blatter said, he said, before we talk about whether she can go to the funeral, I just want to tell you, just make a comment about Gyaris. He said, Gerus, we learn, the Gemara learns from Rus HaMeyavir, right? She said, right? She went after Naomi and got, said, he said, if this, if this was the standard for Gerus for the last hundred years in America, I don't know if there would have been him. He says, but Pecholaifen, said, said, look, said, you have to, he said, you have to think about what's going to happen if you tell this person that she's not allowed to in any way recognize the, the funeral. Says that she's gonna maybe she might get stuck. You see, the Gemara is always worried. The We're always afraid. I don't know. If, like in Hilchas Nachlus, if I'm not mistaken, at the end of Hilchas Nachlus, there's a din that the Midrabanan say that a god that a ger is Yerusha's father. Midrabanan, even though Mikra is not Yerusha's father, I don't remember what Timon. It's towards the end of Cheshem Mishpat Nachlus. It says that a ger is Yerusha's father. Midrabanan. Why? Because even if it's even if you know. No matter what, that's the din. Why? Because we're afraid that there might one day be a ger to the yachsul asura in order to get the in order to get a yerusha from his father. If I'm not mistaken, there's such a law. So not to say you have to be you have to be careful about how to answer the style. Can I ask you about? I mean, in Yeridei Reish Bemalas, I think it's Sifzayin or Chesed. It says that a a yid who has a father who's a guy a ger, he's chayiv k'tas bekivadav. So, yeah. and, 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 if you look in, and if you look in our guys, Rabbi he gives an explanation why, right? Avos Chesed talks about it. So, if there's a din of kibadav k'tasik to Shalchanos to his father, why wouldn't he go to the funeral? So, so I'll tell you that 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 wasn't the shaila. The shaila was about going to the church. I'm sorry, I didn't say it oh, clear. Oh, okay. About going to the church, going to a guy's funeral is not not It's time, you know, if you're getting a Yerusha, you also go to the funeral, right? You got to sign the book or whatever it is. Yeah. No, the shayla is about going. Into, the shayla is about going into a church. That's Muhammad, the Kashayla. So what did he say? He said the he shayla, should go in. He said he should go in. Why? No, the shayla no, listed the right no, yeah. no, no, that's not what he said. He didn't say to go into the church, but he said you have to be careful how you enter the shayla because we're always worried that if you deal with the gear incorrectly, that we're a cry for not to push the gear to the axle of the You know, similar to that din by Yachsnachlus. And he told me that I should that I should that I should explain to her that she's mechayiv to go to the funeral. Not that she could go to the funeral. He said, and he, he said she's mechayiv to go to the funeral. He said, the only problem is is that it's awesome for her to go into the church. So right. so we have we have to figure out a way. You have to think about go through the whole thing with her and have a long talk with her. Figure out how she could be right to the midst of going to the funeral. You know, she'll speak to her siblings, right? Because she's mechayiv to go to the funeral. And right. he, and he was and he, he really understood the mindset of such a per- He really understood the mindset of such a person. You know, to me, the the messinus that are, that a are real place. That's really what I mean. Messinus that a real place to take to to look at a shaila and listen to it and deal with it and think about it and go over it. Make sure that it's right for somebody on Friday afternoon. They don't even know who they are, where they are. Care about a young rov. 
walk them through and to tell them how to do and what to do. That's a whole different thing. Around, around, around the country, uh, you know, I'm not special. I'm really not special. Around the country, every, every town, all the way I saw that, every town, they're upon him for decades. Rivnata was there for them. And it's not because they didn't pay, they didn't make any money. It was simply, it was simply just a commitment to Claudius Yisrael. And he was there in every area of halacha. And in the vast majority of the United States, you know, the whole system of Kashrus was him. The Southeast, the, the Southeast and, and through the Midwest, I think till Texas, you know, there was a school for what the OU meant down there was that Rabbi Greenblatt did it. That's what it meant. So uh-huh. That was the whole story. That was the whole story. Beginning, middle, and end. That was the whole story. Glad you enjoyed it. All I'll tell you is one thing. When you have a going, you always want to know what he does with his private time. So I one time had this chus. He asked me to go into his briefcase to get something out of his briefcase. And he was smart enough to know that if he let me in his briefcase, I was going to go through the entire briefcase. And I could tell you I was fascinated. It was old time. I wanted to know which farm he has in his briefcase. Well, I think it was a small Gemara Bab Matiya, Siddur maybe a Chumash. But the thing that caught my eye, it really is, is the story of who Rav Nata was. You know, they say about the Chavetz Chaim, and everybody knew he was a Tzaddik, but he was also a Goyen. Well, what I found in Rav Nata's briefcase was all the pages of a Masilusasharim held together with rubber bands. There was no binding left at all. And I learned from that that everybody knew Rav Nata was a Goyen, but he was also Thank you very much. That was beautiful. Joining us from Palo Alto, California, is Rabbi Avi Leibowitz. For the last 20 years, he's been the Rosh Kohl in Palo Alto. He's a Talmud of Ner Yisrael. Welcome, Rabbi Avi. Thank you very much. Thank you for having, for having me on the program. So, Avi, you knew Reb Nutter. Can you share with us some of your some stories you've had with him, some history, etc.? Sure. I knew Rav Nata, but I, I knew Rav Nata once I came to Palo Alto, California, which was about 20 years ago. So I knew Rav Nata when he was above 70 years old. I didn't know Rav Nata when he was younger, but from the time that I spent with him, because he would come here a lot. We would have a, a many, many gittin here. He would come for a Sunday afternoon. We would sit down and we would do four, five or six gittin uh, together, me, Rabbi Feldman, Rav Nata. We would sit down and do, and do one after the other. So I spent a lot of time with him. He would stay in my house. So I heard a lot from him about, about his, his growing up and his, and his background, he was, he was really, uh, he, he was an Eloy at a very young age. He, he was always a London, he was always, he was always into learning, and he was, a, he was a real Talmud of Rav Moshe. He held himself very strongly and firmly to be a Talmud of, of Rav Moshe. If you had to ask me, you know, who are the, who stands out as, as a Talmud of Rav Moshe, we know Rav Alpha does, but Someone who follows the derech of Moshe. A lot of the people who who say, "Oh, I, I was a Talmud by Rav Moshe," yeah, but they don't follow his style. Rav Nata really was a person who follows Rav Moshe's style. He doesn't quote Rishimus of Achronim when he writes the Shtikot Torah. Everything is about the the lumdis trying to get down, Dainahu v'Nachas Lumka Dedina, trying to get down to the to, to the crux of the sugya, to the Yisod, and, and that that was basically what what he took from from Rav Moshe. Share with us, share with us some stories about Rabnata that you experienced. Okay, um, you know, much of much of my interaction with Rabnata was was in Gittin. Uh, he would come here. We would do a lot of Gittin at, at one time, and and I really got Shimush and Gittin from him. So I, at some point, I started I started writing Gittin at, at at kind of the early stages, not the early stages of learning from him. Probably ten years of 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 being involved in Gittin. So Rabnata would sometimes. Take a, by the time he got here, he came a little late. Uh, the up west got delayed, so Rav Nata was. Uh, we had to, we had getting scheduled. So he, so one, I remember one time he showed he was showing up late. The the plane was delayed. 
so Rav Nata um, wasn't going to be here for the first get. So I said, you know, I'll do the first get. And I'll have him look. O- I'll have him look it over. I'll have him look it over when he gets here. So anyway, he, I, I did the get, did everything. Then the, the, we had another four four get in or so that day. But by the time we got back to my house, it was late at night, and I said, Rav Nata, I want you to look over the get that I did before you came here. And he said, I don't need to look it over. You did it. It's fine. It's fine. I, I said, No, no, please, <laughs> this, please look it over. So he looks it over, and he's like, Ah. What's this? And he, he gets to the name. The hardest part of Gitten is the, the name. Naming, uh, and the names and the places also hard. But the names, the names and the places. Particular, yeah. it's American names, particular, right? Yeah. So, so the, the way it works like this. In Gitten, if you're going to write, let's say, the name Philip. So we do the end fay as, as, a, as a regular fay, not as an end of fay, like a, like a regular fay, uh, like a curved fay, not a straight fay. So, so, uh, so that's what we do with Philip, if it's going to be like a pay. But if it's going to be a, a fay, then you do it regular. You do it like like with an end. So I don't. Know, I was. I, I think I had. We had a Philip that day, or at some point, where we're gonna have a Philip. I ended up writing the name Jeff with, an, with a regular fay, not an end fay, which would really be like Jet. Sort of not to look at this as Jet. What's Jet? Um, oh no! I look at the get, and it's a, I really messed up in this one. So I'm not just thinking and thinking. He picks up the phone. I'm thinking, who's he gonna call? So he ends up calling his son, Rav Yaakov, from Memphis, and he says, Yaakov. And he starts telling him over and over this, uh, uh, Jeff, what do you think about Jeff? Is it, could we say it's Jeff? Or, uh, da, 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 back and forth. And he's, you know, clearing whether it's, it, when they started writing this kind of pay and that kind of pay, I don't even know historically when that started, but that's certainly the, the, the meaning now. And one of the questions was, is it even such a name, Jeff, or is it kind of obvious, like Muchach Mitocho, that it's Jeff? So Rav <coughs> was back and forth and back and forth. He hung with the phone, he said, Write it over. Get the ball back here and write it over. He was never a makeel with Gittin, and there was no, there was never doing too much. And the problem with the get, you write, you write the get over. And I had it multiple times where he wasn't willing to be to be makeel. Once I had a situation where we we uh, the Adim um, the Adim signed. They're supposed to declare before they sign that they're signing lishmo ulishmo lishim girishin. Like, like we do whenever we do any kind of lishma. Uh, you say, I'm signing lishma with lishma, like you do with, with a fias matzah, you know, the same matzah mitzvah, like you do with, with stam. It comes from a sefer chumas in, in, in the Russian Hilcha sefer Torah. So getting is no different. You're supposed to declare that you're, you're writing and that you're signing lishma with In other words, it's not just in your mind. It has to be bepeh. It has to be bepeh. Has to be yeah. So the, the aides forgot to do that. He forgot to say it, and we only realized afterwards. So I said, "Why don't we just let's just scratch out the you know break the letters? We'll break the letters of the chasima, and then you, the aide will refill it in after he says he's doing the shmolish mahirish." And the ball already left. The, the woman wasn't there. It, it was a get. It was a get that was going to be delivered at, at, at a later point, and um, we did it. We spent like 15 minutes scratching it out, having the aide redo it. Ramadan looks at the get and he says, "I want it written over. Has to be written over." He was choshesh that since they signed, they signed the get. And it, there was a, a, a shayla of lishma. Maybe it's considered mezuyaf mitocho. Maybe apostles the whole get, and he, he wouldn't he wouldn't allow it. He would not allow such a get to, to go through. And I said, look, I have a shear. I have a shear. It was a Sunday. I have a shear coming. I'm giving a shear in, in, in an hour from now. I don't know <coughs> whatever it was a half hour from now. I don't have time to write over the get because I was made the sofa and the ball's not there. So uh, Rav Nata said. I'll give the shear, you write over the get. And, 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 and I mean, you, you realize the Shabai because, again, if, if somebody's signing, if you're bringing two Adams to sign and a get, it's very unusual to do this, right? 
like you could certainly assume that they're doing it because it's a get. That was Shane Garrison, right? And yeah. and and since we 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 do write the get in per person, it's not like a factory. We could assume that they're writing it. So yes, it's a chumrah to write it, but but Lamaisa, it, it would be very hard to take the position that the person was writing it for somebody else or he wasn't writing it for getting. So it's 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 it's, it's, you, uh, it's a chumrah. You know, you know what I mean? Let's say you would write a Sefer Torah, Tzillin Mezuzah, without saying, I'm writing a Lishma, just thinking you're writing a Lishma. So according to Sefer Tzillin that would be an issue. But, but it's unclear. It, my point is, is that a Sefer writes things for a living. Okay, so he wrote, he did, he was thinking, he was thinking. When you bring in an aide to somebody to come to a get, it's a thing that's going to happen to this guy four times in his life. He's making a, he rutsons beforehand and after. It's hard to imagine that he's not signing with shame get. So that would be my point. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, um, one time, one one of the complications when it comes to writing Gittin is the Kviyas Hamakom because right, so it's very hard for the, the spelling and the writing and exactly where is it's 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 yeah where continue. where it is and, and the minig is the minig is when, when you're Kovea a new Makom it's supposed you're supposed to give two simanim of where it is because you can have a river a river a, what's the other one river Meimayanos Beiros Boros whatever it is Kefiyama something some kind of simon some kind of simon like in Yerushalayim you do Yerushalayim that's on the Meishi on, and on May Boros, but the point is, it says Shachan is supposed to have two sim on him. He's supposed to have two sim on him. So w- w- when when Ravnado originally was coming here, we would always go to San Francisco to do the get. San Francisco is about an hour drive from Palo Alto. We, it was a, it was a big pain. We'd always go to San Francisco to do the get because it's, San Francisco had a kvias already, it had a kvias for, for many years. But the get and started becoming the people involved in it were were not there, were not there. So it was becoming very difficult. We kept nudging him, nudging him. Let's be Covea Palo Alto. Let's be Covea Palo Alto. So then two things come up. Number one, when they were Kovea San Francisco, for example, they, they said they, it was Yiddish speakers. They were Kovea at San Francisco. You know, like it's just the way it was written is, is not necessarily the way an American would pronounce it. So that becomes one question. When you're going to now do Palo Alto, which is going to mention that it's on the San Francisco Bay, are you going to spell San Francisco the same way? That, that, was, that was one question that came up. And another point is that you're supposed to have two simanim in, in, in a get. When you're Kovea in the Makom, you're supposed to have, let's say, Meishiloach uh, and Meiboro. So this and, and that. If you have something else. So when another was Kovea Palo Alto, he was Kovea, and very few people are doing this. Very few people are being Kovea in new places to start writing, to start writing gifts. And Ravnata was uh, was running all over the place, and he was the one who was who, who was very very well respected in, in this area. So he was Kovea Palo Alto, and he decided to be Kovea as Palo Alto Masadiyasva Al Kef Yama. Mystery San Francisco Bay. No, nothing else. No other waters. I said. I, I, I said. Where's the second simon? Kefiyama de Mystery San Francisco Bay. That's one simon. Rav Nathan said, Name. That's two simonim. Number one, Palo Alto is on Kefiyama. That's one point. A second thing is that Palo Alto is on a Kefiyama that's called San Francisco Bay. Where else are you going to have San Francisco Bay except Al Yad San Francisco, somewhere near San Francisco? So he held that even though it said it as it's not two Al's, it's not Al this and Al this, but he held that that Kefiyama de Miskri, San Francisco Bay is called Tusimanim, just because there's the Kefiyama aspect of it and the de Miskri, San Francisco Bay aspect of it. These were these were things that that, that he was willing to to do. Not, you know, I learned I learned Gittin only by him, and some of the things that he did was not exactly the same way that everyone does it. But he had his way of doing it, and he was so with, well respected by the Dayanim in Eretz Yisrael, by all the Batidim in, in in America. If I'm not to did it this way, uh, like one of one of the big Masajim Gittin or Sandaravik once told me, Kavar Horizakein, you can't argue with Rav Nata. Not to did it that way. That, that's the way it's done. You can't say anything else. I'm just curious, as an aside, I mean, Palo Alto is a tiny Jewish community. 
orthodox, certainly. Like, how do you have so many getting over there? That's a good question. It's a tiny from community. It's a tiny from community. Um, there are a few from communities in the area, the San Jose, Sunnyvale, Palo Alto, but it, 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 you're right. As far as from, it's very tiny. As far as Jewish community, as far as, for example, tons of Israelis come here to Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of Israelis moving here, uh, assimilating here. And, and, so why, and why are these assimilating Israelis suddenly interested in getting, you know, kind of orthodox the answer is most of the time it's because they want to be recognized as being divorced by the Rabbanut in Eretz Yisrael because, let's say, they have a property there. It, 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 the, the ex-wife will be Yoreshit. You know, they, they need to be recognized as being divorced by the Bezdin in Eretz Yisrael. So they make it their business to make sure they have a get. And the truth is, there's not enough getting over here. There, there used to be more, and people, they, they, once they assimilate too much, you know, Rechman al-Fan, they, they stop doing it. They stop doing getting. Tell us one more story. Okay, I'll tell you something that Rav Nutter once told me. Not, not about Gitin in particular. Rav Nutter was also a master in chalitza. He once came here to do a chalitza. I, he might have done the most chalitzas in, in, in America. He, 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 sort of, he learned chalitza by Ramosha. He saw Ramosha do many, many chalitzas after, after the war. And Rav Nutter was completely confident in chalitza. But you know, when Rav Nutter wrote it, I mean, which it's, it's a fairly rare occurrence, a chalitza. Very rare, yeah. So when Rav Nata wrote, wrote a get, everything was Balpeh. He didn't have to have any text in front of him. He didn't know Madrich, no. He didn't have a... a, a he he, was he a cipher? He wrote it himself? He wrote it himself. So, yeah, that, and when you're traveling doing get, and you have no choice. You have to write it yourself. I do also. When, when you're somewhere where there's no other people, you've got to learn how to be the messiah. Okay. And that actually becomes an issue because according to one of the dinim, is, it says in Tzvei Tshuva, you, you shouldn't have the sofa be the, be the, uh, be, be the, uh, the shliach on a get. Sometimes you have to be because you don't have enough people because there's, a, there's an issue with the b'fanei nichtav, b'fanei nechtam. What are you going to say? B'fanei nichtav? What do you mean b'fanei nichtav? You, you wrote it yourself. So whenever we send Gitin to Eretz Yisrael, we have, they, they always like call and say, what, what, why is the sofa the shliach? Why is the sofa the shliach? The shliach and you always have to explain, this is not a, a Bezdin in Tel Aviv. We don't have 100 people waiting to, to be on the Bezdin over here, so we just have not enough people. So anyway, um, Rav Nata would travel to do chalitzas. When people needed to do chalitza, he they would call him. Whether I was in the Spalvai, he once came here to do a chalitza. It's one thing to do a get. He did get. He did hundreds and hundreds of gitin, you know, a, a year. So of course he's doing gitin balpeh. But to do a chalitza, not a chumish, he's doing the kriya of the chalitza without a chumish in front of him. Me'ain yivami l'hakim l'achir shem v'yisrael lo avar yadmi. I mean, just repeat, telling you, repeat after me, repeat this, repeat this, doing the whole seder. Chalitza with just from his head, just just off the top of his head, knowing exactly how. And that I, that I was in the small by. I once heard that Rav Nata was on a bezin for a chalitza somewhere with a chash of Rav, and the Rav, the way he told it over to the to the woman before the chalitza, as he said, "We're going to do the chalitza now." And after the the, the other Rav said, "The chalitza, are you doing this chalitza? You're going to be mutter to everyone except the kohen." That's what the Rav said. Rav Nata, what about what okay? Rav Nata said, "Nay." That's not true. There's no shear in a chalitza. Whether shear in a chalitza is a problem, like it is by get, is a question, but you're not being a shire in the chalitza. She's a chal- you're doing the chalitza to be mati her, the kuli. The whole world. Except that she's also the kind from a second for a second reason. Yeah. One of the things that he... Did he bring his own shoe along for the chalitza? Like, how did he, did he travel with a chalitza shoe? 
he traveled to the Khalita shoe. He traveled multiple Khalita shoes because for different sizes. It, ha- it has to go on, to, it has to fit well on, on the foot. It has to be, the straps have to be wrapped, wrapped around properly. So he had a few Khalita shoes, shoes at home and he would, yeah, he would bring his own Khalita shoe. When he would come to do get and he would also, you know, when, when you make a mistake in a get, uh, you have to sometimes scratch it out with a, with a knife and then correct it. So you need a razor blade. So he didn't trust that wherever he's going, he's going to have a razor blade. So he took his razor blades with him. I said, nothing, you don't check in luggage. How are you bringing your razor blades with you? He said, I stick it in my pocket. And it's too small to be picked up by, by the metal detector. So he even went in the radar, in, 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 the, in the x-ray machine, so then they'll pick it up. But he sticks it in his pocket, and he walks, through, he walks through the metal detector. No problem. It is after 9-11. I only came here after 9-11. He's walking on a plane with razor blades. Interesting. Wow. So do you do chalitzas too? Have you done chalitzas? No, no, no. no. Chalitzas. I think Rabbi Heinemann mentioned by the by the Levaya that in Baltimore all the time he was there there were like ten chalitzas. Chalitzas is really not a common occurrence. Not that came once to do a chalitza. And, uh, I was by a chalitza. Somebody asked me to go to a chalitza, so they had a bezdin over there, and they asked him all the questions. I say, are you are you the uh, the brother? Yeah. Afterwards they finished chalitza. I said, I think you have to do it again. He said, why? He said, you asked if the brother. You didn't ask me. Bitznesus achbenaim. Uh-huh, and, and they redid the chalitza. Really? This is this is the yeshiva bach. Well, they redid the questioning. This is the yeshiva bach in me. That and I remember when I learned in Eretz Yisrael, if you went to somebody's house sukkah and you couldn't find at least one way to puzzle the sukkah, that means there was something wrong with the way you learned to the sukkah. <laughs> okay. Is there any other, anything else that in memory that sticks out? A particular story you'd like to share? I, I would just say a, you know a sheet of his. He he was very masked on the yichus of Kali Yisrael. And one of the things that, that was a pet peeve of his, and you know, it, it's, it's often quoted from Rav Moshe to be kind of machavek when a person is coming from parents or balichuva, not uh, not from. He, uh, he says he's a kohen, he's not a kohen. He says he's a kohen, he's not really a kohen. Rav Moshe was very machavek. He said, "Do you understand what you're doing just to, to machavek being kohanim? You, you, you could potentially be, be creating halalim. Halalim, halalim is not a one generation thing. Halalim lasts the dori doros. Every son who has a son who has a son who has a son, and then a daughter, she's a halal." Oh, she can't marry a Kohen. So he, he was very mocked, but he, was, he got very annoyed when people would, would quote Rav Moshe as, as just, ah, oh, parents aren't from, she's, she, she's uh, you, you, don't, you don't have to, uh, you don't, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to believe that he's a Kohen. And Rav Moshe held that, no, it, I mean, it's one thing if you look more into it, but just, just to, to do away with it for nothing, he, he was very mocked on, on the Yichos of Kali Yisrael, which is why he was so mocked to go around from community to community to community. I mean, he spent his life doing Gitin throughout, throughout the entire America in any city that doesn't have a normal a regular Bezdin, Rav Nata was there. Rav Nata was, 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 was the Rav who was coming in and, do, and doing the Gitin to make sure that, that, that we were not going to be Marbim Mamzin of Yisrael. He, was, he, was, he had a true Avas Yisrael. I know you're doing on Rabbi Wallerstein also, had also a true Avas Yisrael. And people could express their Avas Yisrael in, 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 in amazingly different ways. Rav Nata was motivated by his tremendous Avas Yisrael to make sure that the Yichas of, of Kal Yisrael is going to be clean. Kivaldik, thank you very much, Rav Avi, for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Cool. So bye-bye. Last week's riddle was, why do you start Kriyas HaTorah by Shar Kesav Yezki Valeid? L'chair you should start for Dabra Obnei Yisrael V'amarta Lehelehem Mayadei Hashem Asher Tikru Oisam Mikroi Kodesh Elehem Mayadei Why do we start by uh, seven or eight seconds before that? So the Lovush answers because uh, that they should have uh, Revach. You should have just enough Psukim. I mean, there are 67 Psukim from Elam Ayadeh Hashem till the end of the Parsha. That's more than enough for seven Kruim. You only need three Psukim to call somebody up. This is uh, almost triple the amount you need per Kruim. So we don't understand the Lavush. Some said, because since Yisrael brought a lot of Karbanis, 
So that's why they learned Dinei Karbanis, you know, Shivas Shavim Tachasima, etc. Question is, the Gemara says in Megillah, that you read it because of the Parshish Hamayadim and not from another reason. It's not because of the Mayadim, it's because of the Karbanis. I think the answer is that, uh, and I didn't see this, by, no, nobody called this in, is that we say, Mekadesh Yisrael Vazmanim, the Gemara Darshans, they're Kavyachal's Mekadesh Yisrael, and they're Mekadesh Dezmanim. There would be no Kedusha Yisrael. There would be no Kedusha Sazmanim. It all filters through us. Where's the first time in the Torah that says, Vinigdashti Besoich B'nai Yisrael, that Rabbi Shalom is Neskadesh Besoich B'nai Yisrael, is in the parish before Sharkes of Yezki Valid. After Vinigdashti Besoich B'nai Yisrael, you could have Mekadesh Yisrael Vazmanim. I think that is the uh, some most simplistic answer. None of our listeners uh, suggested it. And since I am the arbiter of these t- these answers, I'm going to say that I'm the only one who got it right here. So therefore, even though we will name two winners, we won't be giving any prizes. The second riddle this week it, that we asked is that uh, the Gemara Darshan's Ishish, that a guy could bring Karbonis. We said, how could it bring Karbonis? There's ein shlichas lakum and hani kahani shluchududon, the kahanim arawa shlichas. So since the kahanim arawa shluchum, how could we pass how are they going to the mitzvah if they don't have shlichas la'akam? So some sit over from Rabbi Grain, Rabbi Yitzchak that by kodshe akam, the akam is not a bailam on the carbon. But the problem with that is, is that the Gemara says that yesh is a smite tmura b'kodshe akam, and tmura is only by kodshe bailam. That tarot is very schwer. And also, kodshe akam is a smite mismicha, and that's also smicha is only a mitzvah sabailam. So therefore, these I believe that tarot is schwer. There is a tarot that they bring in the Chidusha Rebbekivei in Ksubis Daf Yeralef from Reb Shloim Ega. He says something very interesting. He says, just like by Ein Shuiach Advar Avera, but the, if the Maisa it helps for one, it also helps for Gabi de Mishaleach, like Rashi says in Bab Metziah, B'shut from Shiganfo. So he says, any time you say Ein Shlichas, once the mice helps for one thing, it automatically helps for the other thing too. So it, since by all shlichas, and what do we say? That the kehanim are drachmane, and they're also shluchididan. Since the shlichas helps the gabi drachmane, the koyin is always shlich drachmane, even if he's doing it for a guy. So since his shlichas is chal, it's also chal, the shlichas of the kehanim for shluchididan also. Big chiddish, you need shloimeke to say it, but if you that, you have an answer on the uh, the kasha that we asked, the brilliant kasha that we asked. The winners of this week, Amosha Shmiel Rottenberg, who had a lot of really good answers, just not necessarily on the first one that I agreed with, and Chaim Leib Hildesheim. Both really Talmud Chachamim, who had beautiful ter- and who this time and many times in the past have answered fabulous uh, Terutzim and our riddles, Cult of.